You're currently listening to Onyx and the world of oil derivatives. I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce you to Onyx Insight, a reporting and analysis service that focuses particularly on the oil swaps market. The service comes in a form of daily WhatsApp updates, trading window reviews, monthly reports, and liquidity and volatility assessments. All our information is derived directly from our trading floor of Onyx Commodities, the number one liquidity provider of oil swaps globally. There's no service like ours, providing expert analysis across the barrel and reporting in real time from those with real skin in the game. To find out more information and sign up to our free trial, visit our website at www.onyxcapitaladvisory.com or Google Onyx Advisory Insight. Also, please be sure to check out our LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. everyone. Welcome to another podcast with Onyx Insight. So my name is Greg Newman, I'm CEO of Onyx Capital Group. And today I'm joined with some traders from the Onyx Commodities Trading Team. We have Benedict Williams, who's a trader on the light ends, gasoline and naphtha. And also Arya Rushan Bakti is with me, who trades the fuel oil and the uh, starting to look at and trade the kind of gas oil, fuel oil and marine fuels uh, of which starting to trade now in the swaps market. So these two traders are on the Onyx Trader Development Program and, and are writing reports every day on Onyx Insight. And they've done a lot of work and research on this lately, of course, with this topic being um, so crucial to the market and what's coming up. So to be clear, we are discussing you know, IMO 2020 and you know, the potential or what we think could be a speculative bubble forming. And we're going to discuss that today. So just for some framework, um, the market has been speculating in the swaps market since around January, February 2018. So the first movers were looking at the gas sell versus Brent uh, as a trade to speculate long on, on the back of the general narrative being there's going to be a shortage of distillates as bunkers move more towards distillates. We're going to kind of question that logic and discuss these types of things as we go on, but that has been the narrative and has forced or pushed the market up to some degree on a speculative basis so far. We've also got a lot of traders looking the complete reverse for high sulfur fuel, which is the current fuel for that bunkers use. And that is now minus $24 barrel, $24 dollars per barrel to Brent at the moment and compliant fuel is 13 plus 13 dollars per barrel uh, to Brent the only difference being the difference in sulfur so the current high sulfur fuel oil is 3.5 percent sulfur and the very low sulfur fuel oil is a maximum of 0.5 percent sulfur so just to be clear there's a 37 dollars per barrel difference in the two right now uh, in addition the gas oil cracks in general, gas oil versus Brent has performed relatively well in the past couple of years, despite very volatile price action, which again, as I spoke about before, could suggest speculative bubble or at least kind of a herd mentality. So gas oil cracks at the moment stand at $18 per barrel in Cal 20 and heating oil versus Brent, i.e. the, the more uh, distillate used in the US is currently at $22 per barrel per Brent. So that's kind of where we are from a price perspective and value perspective. Uh, But Aria, why don't you start off with what the actual current solutions are as it stands for bunkers and users of marine fuel? Yeah, sure. So ultimately, we see bunkers having really three options. And the first is to 
install scrubbers so that they can keep running the high sulfur fuel oil. Um, the other option is to run compliant fuels that are of sulfur density of 0.5 or less. And ultimately, ship owners can choose to be non-compliant. And the reason they would do this is if ultimately the cost of being compliant is more than any penalties that they would have to pay for being non-compliant. Okay, great. So, you know, just for references, and we're varying kind of audiences out there on this. So just scrubbers, um, sure, a lot of people have heard about it, but <clears throat> Benny, why don't you start off what actually scrubbers are, and then let's talk about the economics of scrubbers. Yeah, so I think you first need to dive into what IMO 2020 actually regulates, and that's sulfur emissions. Yeah. So they need to decrease to 0.5% by weight out of the exhaust. A scrubber, therefore, removes any sulfur or sulfur dioxide from the exhaust. They can be open loop or closed loop, which really refers to open loop is into the ocean, therefore not an emission, but a, a liquid waste. And closed okay. loop encapsulates the, the waste sulfur, which itself is toxic, okay. for disposal later. Right. Scrubbers, <clears throat> the prices vary, really. For a brand new ship out the dry dock, a scrubber will cost you about $2 million for installation. Mm -hmm. Whereas for a retrofit, you're talking 4 to $5 million. Okay. And so this is the costing for putting one on. Like Roughly where are we standing at the moment, Ari, on, on the kind of who's... Well, it's forecast on. that by the start of IMO 2020, so by January of 2020, around 10% of the global fleet will be fitted with scrubbers. Okay. However, if you take it on a tonnage basis, it's only 4% of the global um, t uh, fleet by tonnage that will be fitted with scrubbers. And given the recent very high freight rates, I believe more owners would, be, would have been reluctant to have docked their ships as they want to capitalise on yeah. the high rates. So it could even be less than the figures that we've just mentioned. So, so this is the thing. So the, you know, again, going back to where we are, is $37 per barrel difference in compliant fuel versus non-compliant fuel uh, at the moment. So we, need to, I mean, we have to start with the economics of what, the, what it would cost to build a scrubber and is it worth it? So Benny, why don't you talk us through the numbers that you've researched? The thing is, is scrubbing does make sense. Yeah. If you took our highest cost estimate for let's say $5 million a boat, we use Maersk. Maersk Which is the very company. highest, right? Yeah. For, for an old ship that needs to be retrofitted, yeah. In 2018, Maersk used 11.9, 12 million tonnes of fuel, which is approximately 75 million barrels on a 6.35 conversion. At a $37 difference between the 3.5 and 0.5% fuels, you're talking 2.8 billion extra costs added to the balance sheet. You compare this to scrubbers, Maersk have a fleet of approximately like 355 ships. Mm -hmm. To install scrubber for $5 million on that, it's going to cost you $1.8 billion. So mm -hmm. straight away you see there's $1 billion of savings to be made. On the worst case scenario. On the worst case scenario. But of course, as you, you alluded to, we've had this discussion obviously many times, and, but there is still an opportunity cost. Of course, you've, you've got to put every ship that you're installing into a dry dock and they can't be on the seas. But I guess you're looking at a very long-term business, so you'd think the one-off one cost would pay for itself, especially if the prices remain this dislocated. I think that's probably our first point that we want to make. But let's just quickly go back to um, non-compliance, because I think uh, you know this is a global mandate, and uh, policing it is going to be difficult, and it is what people are discussing. So, Ari, what are your thoughts on non-compliance? Yeah, non yeah. Um, definitely. And first of all, the matter of policing compliance, that's going to be... Uh, down to every state and how they go about doing that. 
individually. Um, in Singapore, at least, we know that they're going to be there. Are there will be fines around eight thousand dollars to shipmasters and owners for being non-compliant. Potential prison sentences of no longer than two years, and ships can be detained, which will be further opportunity costs for ship owners.、Um, furthermore, ships can only carry high sulfur fuel oil if they have scrubbers installed, or if the high sulfur fuel is actual ship cargo. So, you can see that IMO have gone, you know, at a good length here to ensure that compliance is going to be met by the majority of. Owners and operators here. I would question, as in the prison sentence sounds obviously、uh, quite yeah, quite, ex- quite extreme. With the eight thousand dollars, is that worth it to use police resources to use you know policing in general to the, for them to feel their own ships to go and track this, go and search ships and all that kind of things? When you're looking at, I guess the point is the economics. Are so almost justifiable when there's such a big dislocation to be non-compliant because you're weighing up, you know, such a Disproportionate price versus you know so making a lot more money on your bottom line, yeah. Versus being you know slightly morally objectable, objectable. Sorry, <laughs> but、um, sorry, I just on that point because Indonesia came out once,、uh, you know, only a few months ago. So we're just not going to be compliant. Full stop.、And、they've since backtracked, but I think it does make it clear that policing it within Indonesia, you know, as they travel across、uh, different areas of the country, that's going to be. Like impossible to know if they're going to be compliant. Yeah, yeah definitely. So there's there's still definitely that question mark, and that'll be yeah you know, something we're going to keep an eye on, obviously. Yeah, exactly, and especially given the small percentage of the global fleet that is been has been installed with scrubbers. It would suggest that yeah, it's, it's rife, but the potential is rife. Yeah, and I think that, that as the classic thing always is with new laws and regulations, people will wait and see approach. Right, what's everyone else going to do, and then we'll do.、Yeah. So there's more and more people compliant. They'll probably say, "Well, he's doing it," and I just—it's going to be very difficult to to police something that is a, that has to be said,、um, and especially when you're staring down the face of such a big price difference—thirty-seven dollars per barrel. You know, you're getting close to almost doubling the current oil price of crude,、um, just just in terms of just sorry, it's almost equivalent to the price of crude. Just on top of what you're already paying, it just seems. Uh, quite extreme and could you know potentially bankrupt the company, right? So, well, it seems like that's the only option. If you exclude non-compliance, if we're going to be above the board, given that scrubbers haven't been installed, what and、uh, what can ship owners do other than run right very little sulfur fuel oil? And you know this is the, arrives quite nicely the crux of the issue of what why we're doing this podcast and you know are we in a bubble then? You know it, do these price dislocations make sense? So you know why are we here? Firstly, like Benny White. Why? Why do we think the first? What are the first markers that were an expected bubble? I mean, first and foremost, price action. You're looking at a very small number of trades driving a market upwards.、Uh, well, particularly marine fuel or very low sulfur fuel oil they're used interchangeably.、Mm. That's a new contract that's cleared on the exchange I, on yeah. ice. Uh, settled by the Platts Pricing Agency, it's it's very new, and only the first physical trades have been done very recently. So this derivative hasn't really picked up in liquidity much, but it's been used to kind of set the kind of market price of physical. So the derivatives are actually pushing the、um, or the reference price of physical. So it has the influence over the physical, which is you know very very dangerous because small, as you say, small volume, few number of participants are deciding the.、Uh, Kind of physical price for for all、uh, the rest of the the end users, and、uh, ultimately, you know, we are where we are. But we, the best place to start is questioning the logic, because if we're going to be in a bubble, 
obviously we have to make that assumption that um, we are overinflated relative to underlying value. And I guess that's so, you know, what is our, what is, what are we going to use for kind of defining a speculative bubble in this context? Well, for me, what really defines a speculative bubble is the concept of fact and fantasy. Yeah. All trades, be them good or bad, are driven by a narrative that one wants to believe. Yeah. What differentiates a speculative bubble from a great trade or a justified price movement is that the narrative behind it is false. It doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't add up. Right, exactly. Um, okay, so if we're going to break this down, then look at we have to look at yeah, the underlying, of course. And we're, to you know caveat this, we are most definitely swaps and derivative experts. The business has been going for three and a half years now, and we've got a you know, wide-ranging team across the barrel, and we do know what we're doing. However, we are not physical traders, and it's important to point that out. But you know, we have to know about the physical. We have to... Uh, research as much as we can, speak about with the market because it's so integral, but you know, at the same time, it is worth caveating. So we just want to discuss this, right? So we'll, yeah. we'll start with the, uh, the the obvious ones. So, okay, there's this huge dislocation between very low sulfur fuel oil, marine fuel, or with the market price versus um, what has been used traditionally, an enormous dislocation, and why is this? So we're looking at it, and we can't seem to find the answer. So if we're gonna break it down, what are the, what are the key, what's the key difference? and it's desulfurization, right? The difference yeah. between high sulfur fuel oil right now, it's 3.5% and very low sulfur is 0.5. So, all right, we'll start us off there. Like, wh- why, what are we questioning here? Yeah, so we're basically asking the question, does desulfurization amount to $37 per barrel? Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, if you look at other products across the barrel, it, it goes to show that this is a really elevated price for just the process of desulfurization because actually the underlying spec for the for the very low sulfur fuel oil is identical to high sulfur fuel at the moment, sulfur being the only difference. And if we look at 0.1% gas oil, which trades as a diff to low sulfur gas oil swaps on ice, low sulfur gas oil being 10 ppm. So we're looking at desulfurization of 0.1% to 0.001%, talking two orders of magnitude. That diff typically trades between zero and $2 per barrel. And again, to emphasize, that's for a two order of magnitude desulfurization process. Whereas in the case of 3.5 and 0.5%, obviously it's an you know, order of one magnitude difference there. Um, and we can also compare 3.5% to 1% low sulfur fuel oil. Mm-hmm. That process as well is we're saying is a $22 per barrel desulfurization process if we look at the price difference. To be clear, there. that's getting from 3.5% to 1%, 1% at low sulfur fuel. That costs $22 per barrel at the moment. Exactly, yes. And then if you want to take that a step further and go from 1% to 0.5%, mm. you're then having to go another $15 per barrel. Yeah. So all that suggests that this price discrepancy between the high sulfur fuel and the low sulfur fuel can't just be a matter of desulfurization. Right, uh, that's a great place to start. So the next thing is, I, I guess, this narrative, and again, why we think this could be a speculative bubble was because the original narrative, and it does tend to be this way in the swaps market, you know, it's a relatively small number of individuals compared to you know the wider financial markets, bonds, effects, etc. So you do tend to catch wind of what the big players are thinking and this whole narrative of we're going to run out of dislates you know we're, we're questioning why why are, why is everyone talking about dislates because ultimately if we look at the engines of um bunkers they are there 
to uh, they're designed to run residual fuel. So around 80% of capacity of engines are geared towards running residual fuel, then around 20%, sometimes smaller, for distillate. And traditionally, it was always the case that they would start running the distillate fuel in the distillate engine once they're in the port and run slowly in order to not affect the kind of environment and um, be too disruptive in the port itself. But to change the residual engine would be, you know, astronomically more expensive than scrubbers, etc. And it's just not going to happen. And it makes sense. They're, they're there to run residual fuel. And it's in the word, right? It's the cheapest possible yeah. fuel. So a distillate fuel is a shorter ch uh, carbon chain. So by definition, it's a more uh, efficient fuel. And it makes more, you know, it makes complete sense that it's a lot more expensive because it's a more efficient fuel, as I say. Um, so... The key difference chemically is the carbon chain. So residual fuel, you're looking at, you know, a very or the widest possible carbon chain because it tends to be the wider the carbon chain, the cheaper the the uh, product. And so that's why high sulfur fuel oil is being used because it's a residual fuel, very uh, long carbon chain, i.e., hard to break down with heat, takes a lot of energy. Um, and that's why there's this price discussion. So why is everyone saying, or why was this narrative or questioning this narrative of, well, suddenly they're all going to start using distillates? It's all about sulfur, it's not about distillate. So that's the first thing we just were questioning that, right? Um, so I guess that leads quite nicely to, you know, the, the blending side. So anyone looking currently at the kind of $13 per barrel for over Brent price for compliant fuel is going to say, okay, well, what are the alternatives? Uh, so, you know, we've, we've obviously discussed this and trying to figure this out. So the first thing is, is blending and the, and the ship owners are not in a position to blend. You, know, you need storage for that. You need capacity, you need expertise. And of course, ship owners aren't going to, that's not their game. That's not what they're into doing. So the blending physical traders are probably looking at this, licking their lips, thinking this is a great opportunity because you've got all these like varying types of uh, product that you can blend together to reach compliant fuel. And there's still going to be a huge margin to get from there and your costs of doing that to what you're eventually going to sell the price. Um, so Benny, talk us through that. So what are the alternatives right now? If, you, if you're now, all you've got to do is beat a $13 per barrel price for compliant fuel. What are the alternatives? Well, I think the first thing you've got to look at other than sulfur is viscosity. Right. And 3.5% fuel and 1% fuels generally have about a 380 center stoke viscosity. That's like the average kinematic velocity heated at 50 degrees C. Right. Brush um, past that bit. So what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> it means that fuel oil, because it's a residual fuel, it's, it's the muck that comes out right. the, the bottom of the, well, the refinery. It's not distilled in any sense. It's just pulled out, and it's therefore very viscous, very dense. Mm -hmm. Ships are actually require required to keep their fuel heated at around 50, 60 degrees C. Okay. I think 50. To stop that kind of gloopiness. Yeah, to stop it being yeah. gloopy. Mm -hmm. And so for this reason, you can't really use distillate fuels in residual engines because they require right, that viscous lubrication. Yeah. I think that's a really poignant point, right? They're just, they're just not geared to run it, and they're going to run into issues, right, if they do yeah. run distillate in their residual engines. But go on, so sorry I interrupted you. So it's viscosity you've got to look at. Yeah, um, I actually see a problem here with viscosity, because if you look at the very low sulfur or ultra-low sulfur fuels, quoted by Shell, for example, they're suggesting their products would have a like viscosity of between 10 and 60 centistokes at 50 degrees C. So, so considerably less viscous. Yeah, sixth less well, so the only way, I guess you're going to have to add some kind of lubricants or you're going to run into the, the engine's going to run into trouble, right? You've got further costs above your $37. That's crazy. Mm. 
okay, so the alternatives, you look at viscosity, so you actually have to get the viscosity in there, but you know, let's let's part that point, but it's still it still backs up our point that, you know, there's a, this disparity is mm. just is nonsensical and sensible in some way. Um, so but what are the alternatives? So what can you do? Uh, can you what's cheaper but still gets the desulfurization and that's pretty much it. What else can you do? You should run the heaviest, sweetest crude you can. Right. So whatever product you can get hold of. Yeah. The sweetest possible. Uh, yes, is as you say, longest possible carbon chain. So, um, all right. What are the prices for that then, right now? So, what? How how big a dislocation is that? I mean, Ecofis crude sitting around what one dollars twenty. Right. Yeah. Over Brent. And I think that has a viscosity of around four or five centre stokes. So if you were to mix that with something like low sulphur fuel. Right, yeah. So what's the sulphur of Ecofis around 0. 0.2%, 0.29? Right, so plus the low sulphur fuel oil, which is around 1%, you're gonna get this, you're gonna get to the sulphur and you've just, you've added minus $2 per barrel, plus a dollar per barrel, mix them together, it's roughly flat, and you're saving $13 per barrel. Yeah. And there's nothing really changed because the carbon chain is, you know, the. the the residual fuel engine's there to heat it up. There's there's no real reason why you shouldn't be why you wouldn't do that. And what so that I think that I think that kind of encapsulates it well. It's almost as if you want to do anything but buy compliant fuel as it's packaged at the current market price. I mean it's almost a bit of a con. Yeah, you, if you do have saying. to ask yeah. who is benefiting from it being thirty seven dollars or thirteen dollars above market price currently. Well yeah, so that that is yeah, of course. So this is the thing about derivative power and, and how it's developed with the oil market developing. You know, derivatives are many, many times traded many, many times more than the physical volumes. And so derivative power is clearly very important, especially when it's used as a reference price for physical. So who's blending? Who's, who's going who's gonna to provide the price or the, the actual fuel itself? It's refiners, it's blenders, it's trade houses, it's majors, and all of them are big derivative players. And you, if you're put on top of that the speculative buyers you got five different types of traders with different types of reasons all wanting the price to be high because it benefits them economically and only one area who doesn't want that which is the end user and they're not big derivative players so they can't do anything about it they can't lock it in they they have to just either accept it or not and i think this is a really important point because this concept of purchasing power then comes into play because if the derivative market is where it is and it's, that's what the reference price is for physical, then you know we, the current estimations are around, kind of similar to bunkering, it's around 5% people have hedged because you know, bunkers don't know what to hedge. But as soon as they do hedge, I, as soon as they budget for uh, bunker fuel being at the compliant price, i.e. the very low sulfur price, $13 per barrel over Brent, as soon as they kind of acknowledge in their budgeting and now then they're hedging that that's the price they're going to have to buy, that means they're committing to passing it on to the consumer, passing the price on to the consumer. They're taking the cost into their operational cost. And so it's one of those situations where if they actually don't do anything, then the kind of arbitrage economics and the physical blending, etc., we think should come into play and should avoid that. So it's one of those things that you want to be very, very careful uh, or the end users want to be very, very careful about what they do with this purchasing power. Uh, and I think it's very, very topical. And uh, Onyx Advisory, uh, the subsidiary uh, Onyx Capital Group that doesn't sit with the traders but offers advice, you know, this is exactly the type of thing 
that we would be talking through with Bunker is and, and talking through a better solution and how to kind of do it in a much more efficient way. And I guess it comes back to that point, doesn't it, Ari, about the whole dislocation between why is it so close to the gasoline price when it's not a yeah. dissolute, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, it's just fundamentally different carbon chains and different products. The only yeah. difference between the two products, low sulfur, very low sulfur or high sulfur, is purely just sulfur aspect of it. Yeah. Um, and, on, and on that sulfur point, I mean, actually, one thing we need to bring up, and we talk about it being a spectative bubble, but it could just be a bubble in general, right? Mm-hmm. Because at this point, what actually is the environmental impact? I mean, what have you read about that? Yeah, I mean, there's some serious questions to be asked, actually, about how much of a benefit IMO is going to have on the environment. Because the whole reason that it was introduced was to lower the sulfur emissions, because ultimately sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere, acid rain, has been shown to lead to cases of um, premature deaths and and asthma in children. Um, But the broader consequences of... um, of cutting sulfur emissions is that it's actually going to contribute to global warming because with more sulfur density in the atmosphere, this has a net cooling effect as it scatters sunlight away. So if we're reducing the amount of sulfur in the atmosphere, we're just going to be contributing to global warming. And and also, as, as Benny mentioned with the closed and open loop scrubber systems, you know, if you have an open loop scrubber system and you're just um, d- disposing the wash water back into the ocean, well, I mean, it doesn't take much to realize that that's ultimately just going to be evaporated again into the atmosphere. So how much is that really going to cut emissions by? Um, and also, as, as we were saying, if you do start to use distillates instead of this residual fuel, I mean, that's going to have massive knock-on effects on the global GDP in general. It's going to push up demand for distillates, push up therefore prices of jet fuel, diesel, etc. across the, the globe. And so I think that if you pass it on to the consumer, everyone who imports anything, yeah. you know, either retail or, or just any pretty much every business that uses a physical resource is gonna be impacted quite considerably by this and it's just gonna pass over to the oil traders, which mm. are, Exactly. And and I'm not sure if that's perhaps why some ship owners have been hesitant also in installing scrubbers because the mandate and the policies could change you know if it does face a massive backlash people realize it's actually not being beneficial in the way the the imo hoped it to be i mean benny you've talked about before about uh kind of oil prices predicating a recession and that's why you think at this time it could slightly be different but this throws up that question there right if if, you know an inflation aspect right doubtlessly i mean if you look at imo 2020 uh, it raises quite a few issues for the global economy I've read and having done a little bit of research myself, it seems that unlike yield curve inversions, almost every or every recession in recent history has been predicated by a super high oil price. If you took the blending aspect, demand for crude should go through the roof just to supply global trade, ship owners through blending. And you have to add in... Um, if this price is accepted, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> higher refinery margins higher cost of trade, higher cost of living. Everything becomes more expensive once people accept the price of shipping, i.e. the price of shipping fuels being so high. So, I mean, that's, you touched on it a little bit there, like the wide implications in the global market are, could be, could be huge, but from the oil perspective, there's also a lot going on as well. You know, it's not just the blenders and the, and the suppliers of uh, this oil directly. It's the refinery margins, you know, the, the difference between the products that the refiners are selling versus the actual crude they run. It's going to look so good because 
ultimately, you know, residual fuel, again, going back to this word, a ship has run residual fuel, i.e. it's the, it's the, that's why it's priced negatively towards crude because it's, it's really not wanted and that's why they run it. It's about economics. It's not, they don't run it because it's, it's good. They're geared because they want the cheapest crude and they, they knew that it was, sorry, cheapest product and they knew it would continue to be cheap because it's residual. So as soon as you start saying, right, this residual fuel that's been uh, produced by refiners all the time, it's suddenly valuable and it's suddenly actually, you can make a profit on it. So the refineries are just gonna make a hell of a lot of money, uh, which is quite quite ridiculous really in a way. And all again, going back to just the desulfurization. So does the uh, global refinery market have a lack of desulfurization capacity? Well, I, I question that too, because just in APEC, you know, the, the oil industry event only uh, last month, the kind of Asian, Eastern Chinese market uh, was saying, well, actually, we're 100% geared or mostly geared to running a heavy sour crew from the Middle East and from Venezuela and from Latin America. Desulfurization is free for us, so that's why we choose crudes. That are, I mean, that's the whole point. And it's the same for Gulf Coast refiners in the US. So this could be essentially a big issue for Europe because they're not complex enough, but it just doesn't really make sense. I think you were saying the point that about complexity in refiners being high now anyway, in general, the, the, so yeah, high you have to ask, I mean, both <laughs> Gulf Coast and Asian refiners import almost the heaviest, most sour crude they can find yeah, so. because it is so cheap and they run it and produce high quality products, high quality products, yeah. super high yields of light products, gasoline, naphtha compared to their fuel yields. But with low sulfur as well. That's well, the of point. Of course, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the other, the other point I guess is, uh, this potential for high sulfur fuel in general to be kind of neglected because you have you have obviously a demand reduction um, but it's also given its cheapness going to be heavily neglected by the complex refiners but Aria what, that, that throws up some kind of justifiable actions now from end users because it's so economically beneficial right so yeah definitely I mean now at a price of minus 24 dollars per barrel at what point does high sulfur fuel become attractive to refiners the comp- complex refiners being able to use this and as you say as a feedstock as right? a feedstock so yeah, yeah. Um, to yield more valuable products um, it raises an interesting question are we are we neglecting high sulfur fuel or and, uh, but there's also there the, opportunity there? the direct burning because we've had reports from Saudi Arabia already kind of they yeah. burned crude directly <laughs> for their power plants but now they can export more crude and they can burn um, high sulfur fuel instead which is again going back to the environmental thing quite ridiculous because it's just going to go from burning it or producing sulfur in the sea to producing directly on land as yeah. long as the switching capacity is there if you actually look at the price action at the moment 380 uh, versus jkm which is the lng future in asia 380's price per let's say british thermal unit i unit of energy produced it's actually lower well wow. than that of lng so as long as the switching capacity is there in asia it's cheaper to burn fuel oil albeit worse the environment than it is the cleaner LNG. Well, that throws up a very interesting question. Is high sulfur fuel oil undervalued? I think we're going to have to leave that for another time because that's a whole nother topic, a very interesting one. But guys, thanks very much. That was, uh, that was great. And I think um, all the re- shows how much research you've done and it's a very good argument. So a lot of questions there for essentially the market to answer, but I hope you, the audience out there found it interesting. Just a reminder, you know, this is uh, Onyx Insight podcast and we have a Onyx Insight subscription service whereby we are selling uh, reports and analysis from Onyx Advisory who collate information and analysis from traders directly from the trading floor from swaps traders. And, you know, in the swaps market right now, 
there is no one else out there who provides this kind of information on the level of granularity we do and the consistent basis we do. And also from a trading point of view, we give daily WhatsApp updates about what's going on in the market twice a day. We've got our trader meeting notes weekly, our trade ideas, market condition and evaluation, many more things, monthly reports, etc. So please have a look on our website. Uh, you can email us at insight at onyxcapitaladvisory.com or you can just check out our website uh, onyxcapitaladvisory.com so thank you very much for listening and uh, we'll see you next time cheers thank you very much